Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you are our salvation. We were lost and wandering away to our own ways and you sought and found us, saved us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins and you miraculously made us alive in Christ. We had a debt, a certificate of debt that was against us and we just saying our debt is paid in full because Christ paid it all on the cross. So just we're just so thankful that you would rescue us from what we deserved for our sin and gave us the very opposite of it. You gave us yourself. You gave us a destiny in heaven. You gave us an abundant life now, all because of your grace in Christ. And I pray for anyone who's here this morning or listening this morning that doesn't know this great salvation that you have purchased through Christ. And that even today, they would recognize their need for such a salvation and embrace Christ as the only one who can save. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's profitable. And I pray that you would show us the profit of it as we open it together. That you would give us clear understanding of what we're reading and hearing. That you would give us hearts that want to respond appropriately to what we hear. So Lord, we pray that you would be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of us have gotten an email claiming to be from our bank or our credit card company or maybe a Nigerian prince But we don't click on the link and give them all of our information. Why not? It's because we recognize it's just a scam. And in our text for today, Peter warns us that just because a person claims to speak for God doesn't mean they're speaking the truth. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter. We'll be looking at three basic points that Peter wants us to get about false teachers, and it will be more of an overview of the forest rather than looking at each individual tree. We'll start with the danger of false teachers. In verse 1, it starts out, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Right before that, at the end of chapter 1, Peter has been reminding us how we know that we have reliable information about Jesus. And he told us, first of all, it's because of eyewitness testimony of those who were with him and saw him and heard him. And then second, all this is connected to and supported by the scriptures that prophets spoke from God as they were moved or carried along 
by the Holy Spirit. And then right after that sentence, there's no chapter breaks in the original. It says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. In other words, there have always been a mix of true prophets and false prophets among God's people. Not everyone who claims to have a message from God should be listened to or believed. So here are three examples from the Old Testament. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18, beginning at verse 20. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. Or go to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 14. Verse 13 and 14. But ah, Lord God, I said, look, the prophets are telling them, You will not see the sword, nor will you have famine, but I will give you lasting peace in this place. Then the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own Minds, And then a few pages over in Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. And then verse 21. I did not send these prophets... But they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. So this is not a new problem. There have always been people claiming to speak on behalf of God who are not authorized to be his spokesman. And Peter wants us to be aware of the fact that these false teachers will be among you. So they're not just people outside of the church. They will be people inside the church He's not talking about other religions that don't make any claim to be following Christ, but talking about people who are identified under the umbrella of Christianity. Go to Acts 20. Acts 20, beginning at verse 28. Paul's addressing the elders from Ephesus. He says, Be on guard for yourselves. And for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. 
and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. And then Jesus says in Matthew 7, 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So false teachers are wolves, and yet they disguise themselves to look like sheep. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, that Satan himself can disguise himself as an angel of light. So it's no wonder that his workers also disguise themselves um, to blend in. So false teachers not only try to pass themselves off as believers, but they secretly introduce or bring in destructive heresies. That's what the rest of verse 1 says. False prophets, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So false teachers don't have a big sign saying, warning, I'm a false teacher, and I'm going to teach you false doctrine that will endanger your souls. They give the appearance of being a sheep. They claim to speak from God. They infiltrate the church and secretly spread unorthodox and dangerous teachings. So one example would be a few months ago, the results of the 2022 Ligonier Ministries State of Theology Survey was released. And here's a couple very concerning things this survey revealed. Among self-described evangelicals who supposedly believe the Bible is God's word and are trusting Christ For salvation, more than half, 58%, believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. Now that is in spite of the fact that Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. More than half, 55%, agree that everyone sins a little, But most people are basically good. That is in spite of Romans 3, for example, where it says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Or Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? These are people in Christian churches who say they believe in Christ, but they are believing teaching that is utterly contrary to the Bible. And that is a serious problem. These false teachers are in the church. These are not talking about interviewing Muslims or Buddhists or Hindus. What do you believe about Religions and Jesus, man's nature. This is self-identified evangelical Christians. We're not just talking about different views of the end times or different views of spiritual gifts. There's room for agreeing to disagree on some of those kinds of matters. This is about as basic as it gets. Is man basically good 
Or are we ruined sinners? If we're basically good, we don't need a Savior. There's no need for Jesus if we're good. If we're not basically good, if we really are sinners, is Jesus the only way to get right with God? Or are there other ways? And our souls are at stake in how we answer those two questions. It really, really matters what we believe. There is such a thing as truth, and that which is contrary to truth is not just a valid alternative, it's false. Now, I just don't think we get those categories as well as we should anymore in our culture. So this is from Randy Alcorn. He quotes a statistic that only 22% of American adults say they believe in absolute truth, while the rest agree with the statement, different people can define truth in conflicting ways and still be correct. Just utter nonsense in real life. It, so, so Alcorn asks, so if we step off the roof at the same time, I'll fall because I believe in gravity, but you'll hover in the air because you don't. And of course the answer is no. (laughs) There really is an objective reality called gravity that's true whether you believe it or not. Don't believe in gravity. doesn't make it false. It it will get you. And, And that's... So what we need to get is there is objective truth, there's absolute truth, and there's things that don't line up with absolute truth, which makes them false and not just okay. And that's Peter's burden and my burden in this chapter is don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe everything you read. He wants us to be aware of the reality and the danger of those who claim to teach from God and yet are actually false teachers. He continues his warning in verse 2 and 3. Verse 2, back in 2 Peter 2. Many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. So many people will follow the pattern of immorality of these false teachers and as a result... The way of the truth will be maligned or blasphemed. So people will speak badly about Christianity because they see the hypocrisy of false teachers and those who follow them. And then verse 3, And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So these false teachers are greedy. They use false words to take advantage of people. They don't really care about you. They just care about your money. Peter continues his description of false teachers in verses 10 through 22. It's a long section. I just encourage you to read those verses on your own at some point. But the main characteristics of these false teachers are sexual immorality, rejection of authority, love of money, deception, and eventually showing their true colors by turning away from the way of righteousness that they know about but never truly embraced. And so Peter giving us that description helps us um, identify them because remember Jesus said, beware of false prophets 
They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. The next sentence is, you will know them by their fruits. So if you hear this teaching, but there's immorality and rejection of authority and love of money and deception and eventually a turning away from it all, you know they're really not from God. So Peter warns about the danger of false teachers. He gives a revealing description of them. And in the middle, he discusses the destruction of false teachers and the preservation of God's people. Peter gives three examples of God's judgment in the past along with two examples of God's preservation in the past. So verses 4 through 9, back in 2 Peter. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation or trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So first example is God's judgment on fallen angels. He did not spare them when they rebelled, but cast them into hell, awaiting final judgment. And so Jesus says in Matthew 25, 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So there's a fall of the angels from heaven. They're being kept now until the final judgment. Well, they'll be cast into the eternal fire. Second example is the flood. Peter mentioned the flood in his first letter in chapter 3. Lord willing, will come and see it again next Sunday in chapter 3 of 2 Peter. The point is God did not spare the ancient world, but executed judgment on it while preserving Noah and his family members from destruction. And third example is Sodom and Gomorrah. God destroyed these two cities for their wickedness, but rescued Lot out of the fire and brimstone that rained down from heaven. Interestingly enough, Jesus mentions the flood in Sodom and Gomorrah back-to-back as examples of the reality of God's judgment. Go to Luke 17. Luke 17. Verse 26. And just as it happened in the days of Noah so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus completely believes in the historical reality of the flood and of Sodom and Gomorrah. That they are real-life examples of God's judgment in the past and a 
prelude to the final judgment that he will bring when he comes again. Again, we'll talk about that next Sunday in chapter 3. And Peter's conclusion after the three examples is in verse 9. He says, if the Lord didn't spare the angels, if he didn't spare the ancient world, if he didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, but he did preserve Noah and his family and he did preserve Lot, his conclusion is then, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation or trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. In other words, just as God delivered his people in the past, he will preserve his people through many dangerous toils and snares of this life. And just as he judged sin in the past, he will judge the wicked in the future, including false teachers and those who follow them. So that's an interesting chapter. And you might be wondering, okay, so what do I do with that? And uh, I like to just propose three questions that I think come out of this passage that we should address. And the first one would be, are you ready for the day of judgment? Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for man once to die and after that, the judgment. God is absolutely holy. He is perfectly righteous and completely just. He must judge and condemn and punish sin. Habakkuk chapter 1 says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. So here's this holy God. He can't even look at sin. And here's us. All of us are guilty before him because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or as Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So how can any of us stand before a holy God and ever be accepted and welcomed by him? And the only answer is Jesus. There aren't any other answers. Acts 4.12 says there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. There's the only way. I don't care what the statistics say. I don't care what so-called evangelicals say. Oh, there's many ways to God. No, there aren't. There's one way, and it's Jesus. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5 Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He was completely innocent before God. So when he dies on the cross, he's not dying to pay for his own sins because he doesn't have any sins to pay for. He's dying as a substitute for sinners like us who do have a debt of sin that needs to be paid 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust, or the righteous for the unrighteous. Him instead of us, in order to bring us to God. And he rose again on the third day to show he had accomplished everything that God had sent him to do to bring about salvation. And so Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. A second question that 
you might have out of this chapter is, is it harsh and unloving to talk the way Peter talks in 2 Peter 2? Is it harsh for parents to warn their children not to get into a car with a stranger? No. If we love our children, we care about their safety, and so we warn them about potential dangers. Is it harsh for a doctor to warn patients about the dangers of cancer? No. If he cares about the health of his patients, he will alert them to possible threats to their health. And so it is actually loving to warn people about dangerous, destructive lies. It's loving to tell people the truth. It's loving to care that they know and believe truth instead of falsehood. So here's a quote from John Piper that captures that, I think. Right teaching honors God and helps people. Wrong teaching dishonors God and hurts people. So we really believe this book and what's true and things that don't line up to it are false, then it's loving to tell people this is truth. Anything that isn't this isn't true. That's loving. I shared in Sunday school a letter we got from um, Angela's sister that lived in Japan for a while. And right in her letter she says the, the people in Japan are so fearful about death that doctors don't even tell their patients if they have cancer. Is that loving? No. I'd want to know. Maybe you could take some steps. Have surgery, get chemo, get radiation. Maybe there's something you do, but if you don't even know, you're hosed. And so if there really is a God in heaven who judges the quick and the dead, and we'll stand before him. It really matters that you know the truth about him and the know the only way to have a relationship with him. And it's loving to tell people about Jesus and tell them any other way isn't going to work. That's the most loving thing we could do. Amen. It's not unloving. It's unloving to hold back truth they need to hear. So that's my attempt at the question... Is it unloving to talk the way Peter talks in 2 Peter 2? And a third question would be, how can we tell what's true and false? If false teachers are coming from within the church, and if they look like sheep, and they claim to speak for God, and they're secretly introducing dangerous teachings, how can we be sure we won't get led astray? Do you really want to depend on how smart you are? We touched on this last week. If you want to turn to 2 Peter 3, we kind of fast-forwarded for New Year's. Remember the connection between 17 and 18. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, all the stuff I've told you about the danger of false teachers, you know this beforehand, be on your guard 
so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we talked about the antidote or the remedy to falling away from steadfastness and being carried away by error is growing in grace and knowledge, that we're growing in Christ, we're spiritually maturing. A big part of that, of course, is growing in our knowledge of God's word. Acts 17.11, talked about this in Sunday school the other week, the Bereans were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians because they diligently searched the scriptures to see if the things spoken were so. We're not just going to take Paul's word for it. We're going to get our Bibles out and does this line up? Does that line up? Oh, what, what did you say there? Does that line up? And that's held up as an example. That's being noble-minded. We, we don't just take things at face value. We compare everything we see and hear and read with the Bible, which assumes you are acquainted with what the Bible says. Or, similar to that 1 John 4.1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So use your head, use your Bible, and the better we know our Bible, the more we'll readily we'll detect falsehood. So in a chapter called Tips on Spotting the Spurious, I think that's a clever title, the author quotes Ben Patterson, quote, The American Banking Association once sponsored a two-week training program to help tellers detect counterfeit bills. The program was unique. Never during the two-week training did the tellers even look at a counterfeit bill, nor did they listen to a lecture concerning the characteristics of counterfeit bills. All they did for two weeks was handle authentic currency hour after hour, day after day, until they were so familiar with the true that they could not possibly be fooled by the false. And if that's worth doing when it just comes to the stuff in your wallet, how much more when it comes to truth when heaven and hell are at stake? When life and death are at stake? We need to discern through the lens of Scripture. And then ultimately, here's the good news, ultimately it is the Lord who will preserve us. And I get that from Matthew 24. Matthew 24 says this, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders. So not only do we have people claiming to speak for God, but they're false. They're doing miracles in front of you. Which also shows up in 2 Thessalonians 2 and in the book of Revelation that the dark side can do miracles too. So as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So it's not possible to deceive the elect. Why not? Because he's keeping us from being deceived. 
So yes, we want to exercise discernment. Yes, we want to use the word as a means of detecting error. But ultimately, we rest the safety of our eternal souls on the Lord for safekeeping. So let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you that you began a good work in us and you will complete it. You are the author and the finisher of our faith. You will preserve us in between. You will keep us from making shipwreck of our faith, being deceived by false teachers if we belong to you. And so that's our confidence. It's not in our own wisdom or our own ability to keep ourselves. Lord, I pray again for anyone who is believing lies about who you are or believing lies about how to have a relationship with you. Lord, do you cause them to embrace the truth as it is in Jesus? It's in his name we pray. Amen.